You can open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, it's a, just a couple of books before the Gospel of Matthew. Zechariah chapter 9. As you are turning there, I am going to read an event from Jesus' life that is predicted in Zechariah 9, and then we'll spend some time talking about why this event is so important. As you're turning to Zechariah 9, Matthew 21 reads, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, sometimes we can have the tendency when we come across quotations from Old Testament prophets in the New Testament to just kind of go, oh, okay, yeah, verse 5, that's in Zechariah 9, and here's another example of Jesus fulfilling prophecy, and of all the myriads of prophecies, this shows that that Jesus is clearly the, the prophesied one. And I have submitted to you over the years that that is not the intent, that is not the purpose of the New Testament authors to try to proof text uh, in the New Testament and go, oh, Jesus is riding on a donkey. Let's see if that's somewhere in the Old Testament. Oh, great, there it is. Look, there you go. But that these quotations are intended for you to go back and see the whole of the prophecy. And the goal is not to just kind of extract a line out of Zechariah 9 and go, well, see, there's this one little line in here that talks about Jesus. And so there, there you go. Rather, all of Zechariah 9 is talking about Jesus. And the New Testament authors are not going to quote this big, long passage. They're going to take a notable part of it and quote it so that that whole prophecy will come to mind as this, those words would be heard. And so as we look at Zechariah 9, what we are going to see is that the events that Zechariah is talking about are being fulfilled the moment that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem and that this becomes a very monumental event. In fact, so much so that all four Gospels record the event of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's how significant that moment is, that none of the gospel writers leave it out. And so with that emphasis in mind, let's look at what Zechariah says was going on when that moment was taking place. Now, you'll notice as you look at Zechariah 9, in the, in the first eight verses, it is a passage that you would have the tendency to kind of go, Okay, bunch of cities, bunch of nations, lots of judgment. God judges wicked nations. Let's move right along. We have the tendency to do that because especially when you're in the prophets, you see that happen a lot where God is describing judgment against various nations and cities. You see it against 
Syria in verse 1 and talking about Damascus and Hadrash. And you see in verse 2, Tyre and Sidon are described. When you get to verse 5, you notice that this is a long list of various cities of the Philistines. Ascalon, Gaza, Ekron. In fact, Felicia is even noted in verse 6. I will cut off the pride of Felicia. And so here is this description of judgments that are coming against nations. So one of the important aspects as this as this uh, prophecy unfolds is that as you see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, it is a signifying of judgments that are going to come from the king upon the nations. And, and you not only see that as Jesus will render those kinds of judgments and speak about that, not only against Israel, but also in other nations. But is the very essence of who Jesus is. It is why that we see John the baptizer saying when he comes, there's going to be a baptism of fire and a baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's going to be judgments that are coming and there's going to be blessings that are coming. And here is a picture of those judgments that the enemies of God are ultimately going to be judged. And the reason why that is always important, even in our day and time is a reminder to us that no nation is getting away with its sins. And that's helpful because when you read things about like the power of Tyre and Sidon and the power of Felicia in those those days and in that time, well, those nations don't have that power anymore. Those nations are nothing because God judged them. And it's a reminder to us That as we understand Jesus to be on the throne and he is reigning, that we don't get all worried and upset about nations and cities and powers and leaders and kings and rulers because no nation is getting away with anything. No king is getting away with anything. God sees Jesus is on the throne. He's reigning and he's going to deal with it. Now, as much as that is an encouragement, always put the parenthesis in there, including ours. God sees what's going on here. He knows what's going on in our nation and in our states and in our culture. And he is aware of all that and he's going to ultimately do something about that. And that's what's being set up for us here right before we read this picture about Jesus riding in Jerusalem, which is in verse 9. These first eight verses are the king has come to rule. The king is in control. But I want you to see something stunning in this, because, again, it's easy to just kind of roll by it. These judgments are not merely God saying, "Okay, I'm going to judge a bunch of people. But notice carefully what happens here after he describes in verse six, the people of of Felicia and cutting off their pride. Verse seven says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan of Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Now, this is a stunning thing to say. This probably doesn't jar us an awful lot. But if you think about what David said about Philistines, those uncircumcised Philistines and how dare they speak against the true and living God. And now here you have a passage that says, guess what's going to happen? The remnant of the nations, even nations like the Philistines, are going to be like the clan of Judah. 
There is an image here of the Gentile enemies enjoying full inclusion as part of God's people. It will be as if they are natural Israelites, he says. Philistines will be like Israelites. They will be as if they were a family that lived in the tribe of Judah, even relates it to the Jebusites who were allowed to live under the reign of David and became part of the, of the land of Judah. He's giving us a picture here that when you see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, there was a second signification. One, he's come to rule, he's the king. And number two, even the outsiders are going to belong as if they had been born directly from Abraham. They are as if they are a part of Judah itself. And that's what these judgments are intended to do is to wake the people up into realizing that they need to seek the Lord. And that's what these first eight verses are doing is picturing a God who comes in judgment so that people will open their eyes, see their sins, see their need for a savior and realize that it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, where you came from. None of that matters to God that everyone can participate in this kingdom of God that is being inaugurated when Christ comes. And so here is the setup of that imagery that this judgment becomes a positive is that as the nations fall and wars happen and difficulties take place, people are to look to God and see that they can belong to him. You'll notice now in verse nine, this is where our quotation that we just read from Matthew 21 comes from, as well as the other gospel places. Verse nine, rejoice Greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You'll notice this picture now is when he comes, he's going to come in a really different way. You get this picture of him coming, it says in verse nine, and he's coming to you on a donkey possessing righteousness and having salvation, which is not always how those Kings rode into cities. And the image here is that when the king comes, when Jesus arrives, it's not going to be with a bunch of accolades upon himself and look at me and look at all the great things I'm doing and how wonderful am I. He's going to come in humility, not like a, a, a proud military leader. And it's a picture that he's going to bring peace as he goes about ruling the whole earth. You see that in verse 10 where he says he's going to speak peace to the nations. An offer to all people to come into the kingdom, enjoy his rule, belong to him, enjoy the blessings of being a part of uh, uh, as citizens of his kingdom. And his rule extending, it says, from sea to sea. And you might go, okay, well, maybe he means like Dead Sea to Mediterranean Sea. But then the very next line is to the ends of the earth. This is a kingdom that extends all over the globe. Every single nation, all peoples, all individuals 
are being called to come to this humble king because he is the one who has salvation. He is the one who has righteousness. Now, this image is found all over the New Testament. I'll use just a couple of quotes rather than just going on and on and on. But I'll, I'll give you a couple of them where you get this very image, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you'll read in verse 24 where it says, in speaking about the end and the resurrection, it says, Then comes the end when he, speaking of Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God. But notice, when will Christ deliver the kingdom back to God? After destroying every rule, every authority and power. Well, that's what's being depicted here by Zechariah. When the king arrives, he's going to take his rightful place on the throne. He's going to inaugurate his rule. And it's going to be from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. And the apostle Paul comes along and says, and that has to stay in place. Until all the enemies and all the authorities and all the rulers and all the powers are under his feet. And then he concludes and says, and he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Nobody's getting left out of this reign. Every power, even death, even Satan, even kings. Even nations, even powers, every single picture here is all of them being put under the feet of Christ. Same thing by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Here, speaking of God, he exercises power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand of the heavens. Now, what's that supposed to symbolize? Far above every ruler and every authority. Far above every power and dominion, far above every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, who is, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. I just want us to see this picture of when you see Jesus riding in on this donkey and coming into Jerusalem, there is a reason that those crowds there are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here is the one that we have been waiting for. And they are perceiving an enthronement time for Christ. It is time for him to take his rightful place and for him to exert his authority and possess rule over the whole earth. And that's what even you see the Apostle Paul writing and saying is exactly what is taking place. Now, watch how this transitions in verse 11 after he speaks about his arrival. He says in verse 11, As for you also... Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. 
Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trump and he will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they will drink and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like the bowl drenched in the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine for the young women. I want you to notice this picture. And I hope that as I started verse 11, something caught your ear. Verse 11, but as for you... Because of the blood of my covenant. Now that should sound a little familiar to you after Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday. For here the Zechariah to speak about what Christ is going to do in his arrival. To say, but as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, it will be just a couple days later. That Jesus is going to gather his disciples And in instituting the Lord's Supper, he is going to take the cup and he is going to give thanks and say to them, drink it, all of you, for this is, and notice the exact same words. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There is this monumental moment where here is Zacharias saying, when Jesus arrives, the blood of his covenant is going to be established And notice what he says is going to happen at that arrival and what he's going to do. It says there in verse 11, first, he says, I will set your prisoners free. When you visualize that scene as he rides into Jerusalem for that last time, what you are supposed to see is here comes the liberator. Here comes the one who is setting people free from the abyss, from the darkness, from the watery grave, from those who have been separated from God, which is all humanity. And so here they have come and they are being set free. And not only are they being set free, verse 12 then says, and I want you to return to your fortress or return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. That might be the most um, curious description to call Prisoners, prisoners of hope. (laughs) What a picture is being given. When he comes, his people are going to be set free. When he comes, these prisoners are going to be released. They are waiting for his arrival in hope. And when he comes, that will allow them to return to their God, set free from sin, set free from the slavery. Now being able to come back to God and enjoying restoration, which is the very next word in verse 12. Today, I declare to you, I will restore to you double. He is restoring freedom. He is giving you your life back so that you can enjoy relationship with God. So when he's writing in. He's pictured as the one who's going to set the people free, who's going to restore the people, who's going to make it possible so that everyone, even Gentiles, even Philistines, would be allowed to come back to God and to be able to enjoy that relationship and enjoy that that very freedom, that picture of restoration and hope. And notice the result of that as we read from 
verse 13 to the end of that chapter, I'll pick out a couple of spots for you. In particular, verse 16, I'd like for you to pay attention to. It says, so when this is all happening, notice verse 16, on that day, so our context of Jesus riding in Jerusalem, on that day, the Lord God will save them as the flock of his people. That, that, be a great, you had another 30 minutes, you could run John 10 right here and go, okay, then Jesus comes along and says, hey, I'm the good shepherd. <laughs> What's he talking about? He's talking about right here. I've come as the shepherd. I'm coming for my flock. In fact, that whole John 10 scene is those who are my sheep hear my voice and they listen to me and follow me. Well, here's the description of that. On that day, he's going to come in and he's going to save his people like a flock that is set apart for him. He is coming for them and is pictured as their shepherd who will listen. But notice the rest of the image that's given in verse 16. For like the jewels of a crown, they, who's the they? Us. The ones who have been set free. The ones who are his flock. The ones who have been redeemed. He says in verse 16, like jewels of a crown, they will shine all over the land. Final picture I want you to see. When Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, it is changing the life purpose of everyone who listens to him. You are starting off with the people who are imprisoned. They're in darkness. They're enslaved. And when he comes to Jerusalem to give his life. When he rides in at that moment to establish his authority and to have rule over heaven and earth, there is a changing of purpose that now we are no longer prisoners, but now we are his flock. And not only are we his flock, but we are pictured as people who are shining like jewels as the people of God throughout the land. I want you to like zero in on that imagery. I've got a couple of scriptures. I'll show that really lay that out, but there are all kinds of images in the new Testament that speak to that reality. We just recently did that just a few weeks ago, Jesus sermon on the Mount purpose statement. You are the light of the world. Here's Zachariah saying that when he comes in on the donkey and he's going to change your life purpose, You're going to shine like jewels. You're going to be gleaming throughout the land. That's your role in the darkness that is out there. You're pictured as the ones who are being light. Now, here is then what I think is extremely important about that. Is what the New Testament comes along and does for us is it tries to picture for us that with this new life purpose, We are engaging in this spiritual battle in which we must shine in the darkness and be different. Listen to like how the Apostle Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 10, 3. He says, although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. 
We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. You think about that purpose for a minute. Everything that stands contrary to the knowledge of God, we as the sheep, the flock, and shining as jewels, as light, are knocking those arguments down. We're standing contrary to them. We're saying, that's not truth. That's not right. That's not what God says. That's not the way it really is. We are demolishing the arguments and the strongholds, every proud thing, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. There is this picture for us that as the people of God, you and I do not accept the arguments of our culture as truth. If those things stand against the knowledge of God, we do not agree. We go, no, that's not right. I am destroying those arguments. No, that's not what the scriptures say. No, that's not what God says. This is truth being given to us. And we then are pictured as caretakers saying, no, I have to shine as a light. I can't accept what is false. I can't accept those arguments as plausible or good sounding as they may be. We live in a time right now that is so devoid of an absolute standard of truth that we are called upon to look like jewels in the land and pointing out when the arguments are false and saying, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't add up. And be willing to stand in those places and tear those things down. Same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, or chapter 6, verse 11. And picturing this armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, there is a role that is being depicted here by the Apostle Paul. We're standing against the forces of darkness. We're saying those things are false. That doesn't lead to life. That's not truth. That's not right. We have to be the ones to do that. And if we don't, then where's truth going to come from? If we don't say, no, no, I know that all sounds good, sounds smart, sounds wise, but it's contrary to what God says. Then who's going to share the truth? Who's going to put the light into the darkness? This is the image that's being given to us here that as Jesus has come and freed us and given us this new purpose and reversed and restored our condition, now we shine as lights. This jewel image is even found in the book of Revelation toward the end of the book. Revelation 21 verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven, seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke to me. Come, I will show you the bride, 
the wife of the lamb. Now, if you were tracking through the end of Revelation, who's the bride, the wife of the lamb? Us, the people of God. (laughs) We hear that. That's us. We're supposed to be that representation. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Okay, who's the holy city, Jerusalem? Us, we're the people of God, same, same picture, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. We're supposed to be reflecting the glory of God. That's what's shining off of us to the world. Here is truth. Here is what God says. Here is what is right. Here is what leads to life. Here is the way we must go. We are the ones who are reflecting that. And Zechariah says, when you saw the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, riding in on the donkey, as you read about in Matthew 21, then that signified he's on the throne. He's reigning. He's got control over heaven and earth. All authority's been given to him. Judgment will come. No one's getting away with anything. And everyone can be included in this kingdom. No one has to be left out. All people can be a part of it. And we come and enjoy being set free, enjoying salvation, and embracing the purpose that's been given to you and given to me. That we live in a culture right now that all the more needs light. It needs more light. And as the darkness becomes pervasive, it is intimidating. It becomes fearful. And sometimes the thing that we want to do is to hide that light under the basket like Jesus warned us not to do. Zechariah 9. All throughout the land. His people are supposed to shine like jewels in a crown, showing people light, showing people what's right, showing the way to salvation, showing the way to God. Shine to the world because God has redeemed you through the blood of the covenant. And I hope over the next few times we do the Lord's Supper and you hear blood of the covenant, A little bit of Zechariah 9 will kick into your ear about what happened when Jesus established that covenant. Let's go to God in prayer tonight. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, first of all, thank you for loving us as you do. That you sent your Son to come in in great humility, riding in with righteousness and salvation riding in peacefully, calling for all of us to follow him to enjoy life. Lord, thank you for reversing our condition. Thank you for seeing our need as prisoners who are lost in our sins, enslaved because of the sinful things that we've done. And Lord, thank you for reversing our condition through your son reversing our condition through the blood of the covenant that was established for us. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son that day.
that once for all sacrifice that we needed so that we could be restored, that we could enjoy hope and that we could belong to you again. Thank you for this great salvation that we enjoy. And Lord, tonight I pray that you would give us courage and boldness to shine like jewels in a crown. Help us to shine throughout the land. Lord, help us to speak the truth in love, to speak the truth kindly and patiently. But Lord, help us not to shrink back from telling people where light is and what truth is. Help us to be the people, to guide people to you. Help us to reflect your glory in the words that we say and the lives that we live. And may everything that we do, Lord, be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What a beautiful picture was given there in Zechariah and I. Great hope of what God is accomplishing for his people. All in that little moment, it was seemingly insignificant. Riding in on a donkey was so symbolic of a great hope and a great salvation that we now are able to enjoy. Would you like to come to him tonight and enjoy that salvation yourself, turning away from your sins, being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, following him faithfully with all of your heart, serving him? Can we help you do that? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?